Well, good morning. Thank you. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, there should be some handouts coming around. Um, We've got some helpers. They'll get those to you. Uh, Brother Ramon, thank you for reading for us uh, out of Mark um, chapter 5. So the, in our children's class, we've been going through the book of Mark, uh, verse by verse, slowly getting through it, <clears throat> slowly. Um, and uh, when we got to chapter 5, the, the, the passage we just looked at, we spent a while there. Um, and we got tired of just saying, because there's no name for the guy. He's just the, the demon-possessed guy, the guy with demons, the, different ways. So we just named him Uncle Marvin. Um, so, And the thought was, everybody's got a crazy uncle. This one just happens to be a little crazier than the, than the, the most. So what that he hangs out in graveyards cutting himself? Um, uh, that's, that's a little bit different. So if, parents, if any of your children, uh, if you ever get to that text, and they ask you about Uncle Marvin. <laughs> You're not missing anything in the deeper Greek, I promise you. Um, that's, that's just what we named him. Uh, so, but it got really funny because we would be acting it out or whatever, and they actually <laughs> referred to him. Come on, Uncle Marvin. <laughs> um, I just absolutely loved it. But there we go. All right, so um, hopefully you've got a, a handout. Um, uh, anybody not get one that needs one? All right, don't be shy. Um, great, great. All right, so um, that will have for you uh, most of you know, the, the texts that are quoted or th- something like that, that'll be in there for you. Let me read for us out of, uh, we're going to start the second part of verse 13. The first part uh, is when Samuel anoints David. Uh, verse 13. Uh, Yep. So, uh, yeah, we'll just read that whole. So then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me, David, your son, who is with the sheep. And and Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Verse 22, And Saul sent uh, Jesse to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Unbelievable kindness passed on age to age. 
Father, we thank you that your spirit, he attends his word and he grows his church and he does the work of the kingdom and he builds in our hearts confidence about the things of God. Father, thank you for how you have used this by the spirit, how he has used his work to comfort believers across the ages, to refresh us and understanding the things of God. And Father, I pray this morning that you would open up our blind eyes, on our own blind eyes, to see and behold the King. Would Jesus Christ be on full display as your Spirit shows us who He is? Father, we need more than anything else, we need God to be with us. Father, I pray, I pray that you would show us the incredible reality that either God is going to be with us or he is going to be against us and none of us can stand. And so, Father, we pray that the Savior Jesus would be seen clearly, treasured and loved among your people this morning. We ask these things to you. Amen. So oftentimes, when, when seeking to free ourselves, we enslave ourselves. Last week, the president of France, um, Emmanuel Macron, uh, visited the uh, Gothic uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, and he's checking on the status of the reconstruction project. You may recall that back in April of 2019, in one of the steeples, a fire broke out uh, and caused significant damage um, and, and while this caused major problems, let me tell you, this uh, was minor compared to some of the problems caused to that cathedral back in November of 1793. It is on that occasion, in November 1793, that this, the cathedral became the central site for the Festival of Reason, which include defaming, decapitating many of the, uh, the uh, statues, uh, defaming the grounds, uh, lots of other unsacred acts. And the revolutionaries were ready to finally rid themselves and free France from the trappings of Christianity. This happened in 1793, but were you to ask one of the participants there what year it was, oh, they would not say, heaven forbid, they would say 1793. They would have told you it was certainly year two. No longer would they count time by the seminal moment of Christ's birth, they had rid themselves of the trappings of a Christian calendar. The revolutionists were buoyed by Rousseau and his insistence on human goodness, and yet somehow managed to let the guillotine become their major symbol for their moment, for their movement. They, they set their aims on achieving liberty and equity and fraternity and, and somehow managed to pave the way for the last Western emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. Oftentimes, when seeking to free ourselves, we enslave ourselves. And so we Americans, we actually like to kind of poke fun at the French Revolution. Um, and yet their experience, I find, aligns very often with our, with my, everyday temptations. Since our fall in the garden, 
Mankind has tried to declare independence from God, enjoying all the benefits of his protection and provision while having and being able to loose ourselves from his control. This is our experience when we sin. We want independence from God, all the while wanting to keep and retain his benefits. This was the story of Israel in 1 Samuel. They wanted to be, and we've seen it over, like the other nations, armed with a king, a king that they could see with their eyes. And as we shall see, this left them more in need of God's help, not less. Now, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel, so I'm going to take a little bit to get us to where we are to catch us up. So remind us of the recent events that lands us in this text in 1 Samuel 16. So in 1 Samuel 15, we saw how Saul was rejected by God. Why? Because he completely disobeyed the word of God. God gave Samuel not a small task, an incredibly significant task of finally bringing judgment to the Amalekites. Why? Because of their savage acts against the people of God on their way out of Egypt. The attack Saul was to lead was going to be the fulfillment of God's promises that he had held out for 500 years. And Saul failed to follow the clear instructions of the Lord. He dithered. He disobeyed. Saul chose the spoils of war over the very integrity of the word of God. The consequence was that God rejected Saul as the king. So when we leave 1 Samuel 15, we have a rejected King Saul. So the promise of the judgment on the Amalekites, that goes back 500 years prior to Saul. I think I put on your handout a little timeline, and you'll probably see Davidic covenant would be about the time of Samuel. If you go back one step before the Davidic covenant, you're going to see the Mosaic Covenant. That's about the time of the promise of the Amalekites. But I want us to take one more step back, one more 500-year leap leap back, and you're going to find yourself around the time of the Abrahamic Covenant. And I want you to see, this is just astounding how the Word of God works. I want you to see how Saul's actions are already forecasted a thousand years before Saul would ever walk the earth. Genesis 49, that's the penultimate chapter in the book of Genesis, and it lays out the blessings for the sons of Jacob. That is, Genesis 49 lays out the promises for the tribes of Israel. So let's remind ourselves what the tribe of uh, what tribe of Israel it is to which Saul belongs. What tribe is Saul from? Well, we get that in 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. So where? Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechoroth, uh, son of uh, Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. 
So the first thing that we learn was that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Second, we learn that he sure looks the part. We'll deal with more on that later. In the meantime, let's look at what we learn about the tribe of Benjamin back in Genesis 49. Again, Genesis 49 is written a thousand years before Saul ever walks the earth. What do we learn about the tribe of Benjamin in Genesis 49? Genesis 49, 27, verse 27, it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. A thousand years before the first king of Israel would ever walk the earth, the first one who was going to shepherd the sheep, we find out that the shepherd is a wolf. Saul stands as the most prominent Benjamite in the Old Testament. By the way, I put this there if you want to go look at it later this afternoon. Go compare the two Sauls, the Saul of the Old Testament, Saul of the New Testament. Both are Benjamites. I gave you a text there to look at. It's, there's some interesting comparisons and contrast, but we move forward. Consider how aptly God forecasted the character of Saul a thousand years before his existence. Consider Saul as presented there in First Samuel 15, where he spends a morning full of bloody warfare, and whose fall came when? In the evening, for what? Enjoying the spoils. And now reconsider. Genesis 49, 27, declared a thousand years earlier, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. Let us feel the amazing power of the Word of God in the far-reaching effects of His divine sovereignty. Saul is fully responsible for his sin in 1 Samuel 15, but God is fully sovereign and is doing with Saul exactly what he planned a thousand years earlier. It's breathtaking. Why would Israelite, Israel pick a Benjamite to be their king? Because he looked the part. He was exactly what they wanted. Recall that the kingship of Saul came about after the, the people rejected God as their king because they wanted a different king. Let's remind ourselves of their request there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that, that, we may also be like all the nations in that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The people wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted a king to protect them. Saul looked the part, and that's exactly what they wanted. When they learned he was from the tribe of Benjamin, it would have been a plus. They kind of wanted a ravenous wolf. God rejected Saul. And I believe, more importantly, God rejected all that Saul represented. 
God rejected a king like all the other nations because God had rejected the sin in the ways of the other nations. When we look at the project of Saul's kingship, we should see it as a project of God's people attempting to live independent of God. The project of God's people relying on their own power. God's people are made to rely on him in every way and fashion. God's people are made to trust God's word far more than their eyes. When God rejected the Saul project, he rejected the project of us trusting our eyes. He rejected the idea that his people would be saved through their own sight and not by faith. That's what God rejected. So God rejected Saul in, in 1 Samuel 15, but let's continue, but let's him continue being king. So he rejects him in 1 Samuel 15, but again, he lets him continue to be king. Folks, that's awkward. In the meantime, he goes and chooses the next king. Okay, that's more awkward. Let's remind ourselves of the circumstances of 1 Samuel 16 when, he, when we get to the more awkward part. God tells Samuel, take a trip to Bethlehem, and there he's going to anoint the next king. Verse 6, this is 1 Samuel 16, 6. When they came back, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely this Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. Next, he'll go through Abinadab and Shema and three others, and then verse 11 then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, if there was a thing called opposite day, and there was an opposite day for the day that Saul was chosen king, it's going to be the day that David's chosen king. Recall that, that Saul was chosen while he was on a trip, and what was the trip about? Well, he was chasing his father's lost donkeys. Well, David is found while doing what? Safely keeping his father's sheep. Saul was chosen... After seeking out Samuel, David was found after Samuel sought out David. Saul was chosen as the first one that Samuel laid eyes on. You remember that moment when God tells him he's coming into town. But David was chosen not as the first, but as the what? The last. Saul looked the part to men. David looked the part to God. Saul is anointed by himself, and remember, he hides his anointing from his family. David is anointed in front of his family after his family tried to hide him from his anointing. 
The contrasts are too numerous. They're too obvious to be, uh, to not be intentional. In this contrast, what we see is how the sovereign God chooses his king and what happens when broken humans choose theirs. Young people, you must make a choice. Will you, and you're going to have to make this choice multiple times, will you trust your eyes? Or scarier, will you trust your friend's eyes? Or will you trust the word of God? Regardless of age, this is true. We must make a choice. Will we trust our eyes? Will we trust those who are considered wise in our eyes? Will we trust the sophisticated? Will we trust the experts? Or will we trust the word of God? We're getting there, I promise. Background's almost over. If I were to tell you that 1 Samuel 16 is David being chosen and 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David and Goliath, you would say, well, that kind of makes sense. Like God makes him king and then sends him out to fight for his people. But it's not that simple in this really odd narrative that comprises our passage today is stuck in the middle of that. So keep that in mind, sitting in the middle of David anointed king and the great story of David and Goliath is this awkward story. I'm hoping by the time we're finished, you will see that it is very, very helpful. 1 Samuel 16, 13, that last sentence, I think that's really where the passage begins. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramoth. This is an incredibly remarkable statement, a statement about David. We only have about a dozen folks all across the Old Testament where it ever says that the Holy Spirit landed upon. And, and of all of these folks, it always happens for a specific reason at a specific occasion. Nothing comes close to this statement about David, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. It is an incredible claim. Actually went ahead and gave you uh, in an appendix every uh, instance of the Spirit rushing upon somebody from Genesis all the way up till this spot in 1 Samuel 16. Later, when you get time, look through them. You won't see anything close to this. It should be shocking to us that this claim is being made. And so we have this incredible sentence in Scripture, and now look at the very next verse. The juxtaposition is incredible. Now, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Almost as shocking as the previous verse, but it's in a completely opposite way, right? It couldn't be a stronger contrast. Of David, we're told the Spirit descends and he stays. Of Saul, we're told that the Spirit had come upon him twice before, and now he's departed forever. In fact, the only time the Spirit of God will ever come back uh, upon Saul is to make a mockery of him 
in chapter uh, 19, and I gave you the reference, you can look at it later. The Spirit of God lands upon David in an exceedingly permanent way, and the Spirit of God departs Saul in a devastatingly permanent way. But watch, Saul is not only without God, he is now tormented by God. What a remarkable lie. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. <laughs> a harmful spirit from where? From Yahweh tormented him. I mean, put that in your theology pipe and toke on it. Yikes. What do you do with that? Saul represents Israel's desire to live without God. Fittingly, the Spirit of God departs from the king of Israel. But one of the scariest judgments of God is to give us what we want before he makes us want rightly. And so that's it. God leaves. And that's it, right? He just leaves by no means. This is the gap in the logic of the people of Israel. It's a massive gap in the logic of many people in our culture. The Israelites desire to be like all the other nations with a king that they could see so they could see the king, see his army, and know they were going to be protected. They had declared their independence from God. But herein lies the error. The logic assumed that their biggest threats were only the ones that they could see. The Philistines, the Amalekites, the Moabites. But brothers and sisters, those were minor threats. As sinful humans, the biggest threat is the threat they couldn't see. As sinners, the Israelites' biggest threat was almighty, holy God. Like they couldn't see the right king to save them, they couldn't see the right danger that could slay them. And here God presents them with a vivid picture of the way things really are. By sending a harmful spirit, God renders Israel's king utterly powerless. He's useless, and he demonstrates that their biggest threat is actually God himself. So long as we bear the responsibility for our, biggest, for our sin, then our biggest threat is a holy God. The gospel is the incredible news that our biggest threat happens to also be our only Savior. The gospel is the news that we have been saved from God, by God, and for God. The first step of the gospel is a declaration of dependence. So follow the picture. Saul, the representative from the state of we want to do things our way, has been rendered completely useless. He's a madman. So he calls in the advisors. Here's their advice. Verse 15. 
And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Whoa. Don't ever want to have somebody confirm that for you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing with the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. The writing here is just exquisite. So here are the people who so badly wanted a king, like all the other nations, to provide what? Help to them are talking to their great help and protector. I mean, you get the picture, right? They're advising the king, the king that would finally help them grant their independence from God's help, in order that they may now do what? Help him. It sort of feels like the man who gets a dog to fetch his morning paper, but instead ends up fetching a paper for both he and the dog. The picture just gets better. It gets much better. Recall that they that they need help for their fully independent king, just keep that in mind, who's supposed to be helping them. So that's what that's our problem here. We got the king who's supposed to be fully independent and can provide help for them, but now things have kind of reversed, and now they're having to go get help for him. Where will they go to get help for their king who helps them but needs no help, but now needs help? First Samuel 16, verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man. <laughs> the king is now telling them to provide him a man. This is hilarious. Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent in speech, a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. So where does the king right in the eyes of the people, turn for help. He turns to no other than the king who is right in the eyes of God. And I love the details. He calls all the wise men together. They're all scratching their heads. They, they just don't know what to do. But the text is so apt to tell us where do they get their answer? From one of the young men. One of the ones that would not have been trusted with wisdom or vision and insight. And listen to how he puts it. Behold, I have what? I have seen. The one who's not supposed to be seeing is actually the one who's finally seeing. I have seen. Seen what? A son of Jesse with the Bethlehemite. Now, wait a second. Son of Jesse. Count the times. If you go through 1 Samuel 16, I did. There are three times we've been told about David that he is from Jesse. Why does that matter? Well, Jesse is from Bethlehem. Why does that matter? Well, Bethlehem is from the tribe of Judah. Oh, well, now wait. If we know their tribe, then we can find out a lot about them. Remember the trick we just played with, with Genesis 49 and, and Saul? Well, let's try the same trick with Judah in Genesis 49. So here we go. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah. Here it is. This is about Judah. David's from Judah. A thousand years now before David ever is born. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Oh, now that's different. That sounds a lot different than a ravenous wolf. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's club. Cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, not a wolf, as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Verse 10, 10 the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. A thousand years before David could ever walk the earth, a thousand years before 1 Samuel 16 could ever happen. Think of how David was chosen right before all of his brothers. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And you can just picture David finally walking in. Remember Samuel saying, we're not sitting down until you get him. Your brothers shall praise you. Consider how in the next chapter is the story of David defeating Goliath, which ends with him standing over the defeated, decapitated giant with his brothers watching on. And, and listen to these words at the end of verse 8 there of Genesis 49. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Verse 9 gives us the image of a royal lion carefully hunting and defeating his prey. Compare, compare that to the ravenous wolf of the tribe of Benjamin. And verse 10 lays down one of the most important laws of the universe. The scepter, the king's staff, shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. The moment Saul was chosen king, we know he can't be the right pick. Why? Because a thousand years before he had lived, God had already said that the king had to come from the tribe of Judah. The project of Saul demonstrates that our salvation will never come through human effort or wisdom. It must come through God's sovereign initiative. And so the scene is set. We have the tormented son of Benjamin, King Saul, calling for the spirit-filled son of Judah, King David. And the final description of verse 18 seems to sum it all up when describing this. The Lord, speaking of David, is with him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and instead of, of, of us being ruled by our flesh, ruled by our eyes, ruled by our world, He transforms us into the place where it could be said of us wild enough, the Lord is with them. It is our badge. The Lord is with them. It is our badge of dependence. The Lord is with them. The Lord owns them. So David comes from Jesse. David comes from Bethlehem. But his kingdom is only, praise God, the first installment into the unbelievable final promise of the coming of Jesus a millennium later. Hear the words of the angel to the soon-to-be father of a child, Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. 
But as he, that's Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, catch this, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from where? The Holy Spirit. The Lord is with them. As we see King David, we're looking at King Jesus in the shadows. Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 16 through 23. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who's with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with, the, with bread and a skin of wine and, and a young goat and sent them uh, by David to his son Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Again, just picture the image. Saul was requested to free Israel from their dependence on God. And now Saul resides in a state of utter dependence upon who? God. The picture is so stark. The contrast is so clear. The king picked by the people of Israel can only function when propped up by the king picked by God. And let us not miss the beautiful similarities between the ministry of King David and the ministry of King Jesus. David began his ministry to establish the kingdom of Israel with the declaration, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We saw that in verse 13. How does Jesus begin his ministry? He was baptized in the waters of the Jordan, right outside of Bethlehem. And upon coming up out of the water, a dove representing what? The Spirit of God descends in a voice from heaven, hallows. This is my beloved son. The baptism of Jesus was so important to the early church that they celebrated it massively so and actually completely ignored the idea or the, the celebrating the birth of Jesus. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. They celebrated the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus. The moment the Spirit came upon Jesus was so spectacular that it marked an annual feast for the early church called Epiphany. An Epiphany is a moment of sight, sudden sight. Now I know, I know. This talk of Spirit rushing on David, Spirit descending on Jesus, or harmful Spirit coming on Saul, it feels odd and out of touch with our modern sensibilities. But this really is the only option for us to see. Either the Spirit of God opens our eyes, offers an epiphany for us to trust His Word and His Son, or we will not see on our own. The people of Israel completely failed to see King David. David's brothers failed to see them. Samuel, quite the man of God, 
failed to see until God corrected his vision and showed him David. So also, if God doesn't open our eyes, we will miss King Jesus. May God be kind and by his spirit, show us his son. It's hard to beat the awkwardness of the scene of 1 Samuel 16, an anointed king actively serving a rejected king. David could have run into the courtroom and demanded that Saul get up and hand him the throne. Hey, get Samuel down here. He'll tell you, that's my throne now, big boy. He could have demonstrated the foolishness of Saul and pointed out that he is now the rightful anointed king. But instead, he waits patiently and he serves the rejected king. Oh, wow. Surely that reminds us of King Jesus. Jesus, the rightful king, promised and foretold, ordained in heaven and sent to earth. Surely he could have demanded every throne, including, certainly including the Roman Empire. And instead, he leaves the rejected kings on their temporary thrones. Instead, like David, he plays his spirit-wrought role, serving not only kings and leaders, but sinners and tax collectors. How easily Jesus could have demanded the throne. But instead, like Jesus, like David, Jesus, like David, trusting in the timing of God, trusted in seeing what no one else could see, he waited. The season of Advent, it's really the season of us what? Waiting. The king has come, but he hasn't yet demanded every throne. Yet. Over the next many chapters, you're going to see, it's going to become to the point we're going to get impatient. You're going to get frustrated. I get frustrated reading it. Over the many chapters, we'll see the incredible patience of David as he's chased by Saul all over the place. We'll want so bad for David to hurry up and take the throne, man. As we watch these scenes, chapter after chapter, let us reminder, re remember the patience of our Lord. Saul could chase David. He could yell and he could scream, but he couldn't lift a finger to unanoint the anointed king. Friends, this world can yell and this world can scream. Madmen can attack innocent women and girls. They can brutalize innocent men and boys. A secular world can redefine that which is love and that which is hate. A tormented world can invent rights and devalue life. All this they can do. But let me tell you what they cannot do. They cannot unanoint the anointed king. Led by the Spirit, David waited and he played. He played his instrument and it brought comfort to a broken situation. I submit to you that our King, our good King Jesus, he's waiting and he's playing his instruments. David played the harp. Our Lord Jesus plays a different instrument. In Acts 9, 15, Jesus said this about the Apostle Paul. He is a chosen 
instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The instrument of Jesus is the church of Jesus. And the church has one song, it has one anthem, and it's the gospel. Like David's instrument brought peace to the madman, the gospel we share will bring peace and rest. This is the life of the church together. By the Spirit, we share and we live out the gospel. All the while, the Spirit brings help as He opens our eyes to our sin and renews our love for our Savior. The Spirit brings help as the gospel changes lives and the lives of believers bring joy and love and peace to a broken world. Saul loved David until the day he saw David as a threat to his throne. Our world will love Jesus up until the exact same moment. As soon as they see Jesus as a threat to their thrones, they will go from comforted to confrontational. We will watch as David will be presented with multiple occasions to abbreviate his wait for the throne, to take Saul out. Time and time again, he refuses to shortcut sovereignty and chooses to trust the timing of God. Brothers and sisters, let's be encouraged that now is our time of waiting. Let's wait on God. We don't need to win every fight. We don't need to rule every organization. We don't need to be liked by every group or prevail in every election. When the time is right, the right king will be on his rightful throne. As we close, we can see the intentional contrast between the two principal characters. It's unavoidable, the contrast of Saul and David. And while there are many differences between the two characters, I believe the chief difference is this, that God was for David and God was against Saul. And some may ask, in all sincerity, where do we stand? The only way to have God with us is to have the Spirit of God living within us. If He lives within us, he will be at work drawing us to know and follow our Lord Jesus. If you're here and you're not sure that you sense that there is a Spirit of God drawing you unto Christ, please don't leave here without asking real questions. Get with anyone here. Surely we can point you in the direction. If God is not with us, He will be against us. As a holy God, He is always against sin. If we have not been united with Christ in salvation, then our sin remains on us, and therefore God is against us. And there is no reason at all for anyone to leave here in the miserable state of Saul. There is every reason for each of us to turn to the Son of David, Jesus Christ, and find peace and life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. As we've seen, 
It's not just helpful wisdom. It's your divine sovereign plan. It is as powerful as creation itself. When you speak, what you speak happens. It's unbelievable that you've written these things down. It's unfathomable that your spirit would be kind enough to reveal them to us. It's really remarkable that Jesus Christ would come into this broken world and would show us the kindness that He's shown, waiting out the right time, waiting for the right moment, even going so far as to serve us all the way to the depths of humiliation on the cross. We put our hope, our hope in King Jesus, the Son of David from the tribe of Judah. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts the truth of Christ. Help us see him even clearer than we ever have. We ask these things to you, Father, through the name of your King, and that your Spirit will open our eyes. Amen.